Airlines Confidential with Ben Baldanza and Chris Chimes is made possible with the support of Pratt & Whitney, whose GTF engines are redefining aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. Seabury Securities, global reach, global scale. seaburysecurities.com. And Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. We also welcome your business's support. Info at airlinesconfidential.com. Welcome to Airlines Confidential. I'm Chris Chimes. It's summer, airports are busy, airplanes are full, and Airlines Confidential has a lot to cover. Is that accurate, Ben? That's perfectly accurate, Chris. We're going to talk about all those things and more with Joe Lapano from Tampa International Airport in a few minutes. But first, let's get to some news. First up, U.S. Airlines CEOs got called into the principal's office last week. Either that or they were called into the confessional booth. Who knows what exactly was talked about. But they were summoned to a virtual meeting with U.S. Transportation Secretary Pete Buttigieg after lousy operations over Memorial Day and another lousy operational week this past week. Clearly, Washington wants to know how the carriers can deliver a better summer to travelers than they did in 2021. Ben, what was your take on all this? Well, I wasn't on the call, of course, but my take is as follows. Pete Buttigieg, since he's been DOT secretary, hasn't publicly spoken much about airlines at all. In fact, I have one friend who questions whether he's even said the word passenger. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And so obviously we don't know what he says to his staff and things like that. So maybe there's lots of talk about airlines going on behind the, the walls of the DOT. But publicly, he hasn't said much. So when he did this, my guess is he was getting pressure from maybe people like Chuck Schumer and others who tend to follow the political winds a little more. And we're getting a lot of pressure from customers saying, hey, my flights have been canceled. My flights have been delayed. What's going on? That said, it's probably a good thing that he did that. And I'm sure it wasn't the first time he talked to all these people, but the more coordination between the airline leadership and the DOT, the better, I think. My guess is they had good conversations around what's causing this, what some of the labor shortage issues are causing, what some of the air traffic control issues are causing, maybe even what some of the regulations might be causing things. But fixing all those things isn't going to fix this summer because you could change all kinds of things and not affect, you know, next week, next month. So my guess is what they mostly talked about is better aligning the capacity offered to the availability of being able to actually fly those flights with the staff they have and things the airlines could do to passengers who were disrupted when flights have to cancel or when flights are delayed, what more could the industry do either working together or just an absolute to help make the customer experience better when things go wrong. That's my guess as to where most of the conversation went. I think you're accurate. I am hoping that the CEOs also kind of put it back to the secretary, of course, in a polite way, but kind of like, we need your help on these things, like you mentioned. 
clearly some kind of fast track discussions about the pilot shortage and what can be handled with regulatory reform or other kinds of things should be on the table. I'm also seeing, like a lot of other people, there are now staffing shortages being projected for the air traffic control system. So what's going on with that? And, you know, how do we also not make airlines kind of, you know, political theater this summer and getting the secretary and the administration to be constructive? Um, It's really easy for everyone to criticize, but how do we kind of keep things moving in the right direction? So there's clearly a lot of things um, going on, a lot of things behind the scenes, but it's going to be a tough summer. And I also have to wonder, like, how realistic has it been to thin the schedules anymore. There, if you if you start doing that more for the summer, you're basically going to be turning customers away. I, I don't know how much more capacity there is to reaccommodate people right now. That's a good thought, Chris. You know, in the airline economics class that I teach, in my very first class, one of the things I tell students is the reason this class is an economics class as opposed to a business class or, you know, some other sort of class, is all the economic principles of the industry. And one of those is that supply and demand in the industry is often out of sync. And sort of pre-pandemic, that was true because demand isn't distributed equally over any 24-hour period or any week, or any season, and yet the costs of the airline, the planes, the people, and such are paid for all the time. And that creates periods where supply is ahead of demand, demand is ahead of supply, and that creates challenges for the industry. Since the pandemic, that whole problem has gotten worse, Chris, because when the pandemic first hit, a lot of crew and a lot of pilots took early retirement, Some airlines were aggressive in offering buyouts to the most senior groups. Then demand came roaring back and airlines haven't quite caught up to that. So I think we're in this, you know, this position that's going to take probably through this summer and more to really solve. So I'm not sure what else, like you said, they could do other than the thinning they've done and maybe willingness to spend some more money when things go wrong or maybe forcing. One thing Buttigieg maybe could do is, I don't know if force is the right word, encourage is probably better, uh, the airlines to maybe work more with each other. You know, if if just using two names out of the blue, if Delta has to cancel a flight and American has a plane leaving that's going close to that destination, are we sure that those extra seats get filled with some of those Delta passengers, right? And making sure that's true for the whole industry this summer, everybody sort of helping everyone out when they have empty seats that on flights that are going, that might be one way to sort of help this summer. The real solution, obviously, though, is fixing the pilot pipeline problem, fixing air traffic control, and ultimately the airline staffing up to the level of demand that the world seems to want again. And it seems like they haven't quite caught 
up with that yet in all kinds of things. It's probably going to mean higher wage rates for a lot of jobs, which is going to translate to higher fares for consumers. So this is a complicated issue, Chris, and I don't see how everything gets solved in 30 days, but certainly things could be done to make this summer a little better, I think. Yeah, I agree with that. And, you know, reaccommodation, like our listeners know this better than, you know, anyone, is still a very manual process. Um, as much as the industry's invested in technology and self-serve kinds of solutions, you know, one flight cancellation just triggers a long line at a customer service desk in the terminal or whatever it might be. And it's very manual and it's always going to be understaffed because you can't really plan for cancellations. You don't just have a you know 10 agents sitting there waiting for a passenger that might show up. You're, you're staffing to what you think the situation is, but you know, a cancellation happens out of the blue. So it's, you know, I saw it last week at O'Hare. There was a couple flight cancellations and, you know, you thought that they were handing out uh, bags of cash with the lines that were snaking through the terminal, uh, people not knowing what to do and how to get to where they were going. Well, now we're going to make our weekly pilgrimage to the land of airline pilots and the debate about whether there is or isn't a pilot shortage. American Airlines put some serious skin in the game last week, Ben, putting in place a temporary pay hike for pilots at their wholly owned regional carriers, Envoy and Piedmont Airlines, essentially providing a 50% pay increase through August 2024 to head off those regional pilots from bolting to other mainline carriers or LCCs. What are you thinking about all this, Ben? It's an interesting approach, and it's reflective of the fact that the pilot issues are most severe in the regional fleets. Those are the carriers who are losing their pilots to the bigger airlines. I'm not sure a temporary pay increase would stop me if I'm a regional pilot from going to a bigger airline if I felt that long-term the bigger airline was going to be better for my career in terms of the types of routes and types of planes I can travel. Most times when regional pilots move up to a big airline, they're getting an increase in pay, which is a positive thing. This may mean they get a neutral or step back a bit. When you see pilots leaving smaller airlines, like Spirit has reported, for example, they are already taking a step back when they move to a big airline like a United or something. But when they think about their career as a pilot, they believe they're going to be better at the big airline. So I hope this works for this summer for Envoy and Piedmont. I don't think just pay increases, however, are going to solve this problem. The big problem, I think, Chris, goes back to 2015 when the 1,500-hour rule was put in. And as most of our listeners know, that rule was a reaction to the Colgan air crash. And the 1,500-hour rule has just made it so expensive and takes so long to become a pilot. Some estimates put it at about $250,000 of what it costs to get the requisite hours before you even can get hired at a regional. And that what that's done is it's made the pipeline of pilots available 
be only about 50% of the number of jobs that airlines are going to need to hire for pilots. So I think without addressing that issue, certainly we can raise pilot pay. Certainly the industry and lots of carriers in the industry have started academies to help try to offset that cost of training for some people. But what I hope the CEOs said to Pete Buttigieg is go look at your own regulation on the 1,500-hour rule and think about how that is affecting long-term ability for the industry to be successful. You know, Chris, nobody else in the world does that. For 80 years, the U.S. industry basically used what is called the apprentice model, where with 250 to 500 hours, you'd get hired and you'd basically apprentice with a senior pilot for a while and get all of your training done that way. And that was never seen as unsafe. And when we changed, meaning the U.S. changed the rule to 1,500 hours, no one else in the world matched. So Canada didn't match. So U.S. carriers are competing against Canadian carriers who have apprentice first officers in their cockpits. And every day we have hundreds of flights that land in the U.S. from foreign carriers with first officers who don't have that 1,500 hours yet. And the FAA hasn't deemed those flights as unsafe. So I think that's one thing that the FAA could do to help. It's not going to help this summer. But I think a combination of pay increase, academies, and thoughtful regulation around what encourages people to become a pilot in the first place, I think all of those things are going to be needed here. Well, I think you summed it up best when you kind of said, I'll, I'll rephrase, but the American action solves a problem. It doesn't solve the problem. And there's so many other factors at play here, but it's going to be interesting to see how it kind of ripples through with the rest of the regional industry. Is everyone going to be forced to match? I would tend to think so, or some kind of thing like that. Uh, what does it do to the pipelines at a spirit or a frontier who might have relied on pulling more and more regional pilots in into their pipeline? So there's just a, a lot of things at play here that we're going to have to watch over the course of the next weeks and months. This week's show is brought to you by Pratt & Whitney, a world leader in aircraft engines, helicopter engines, and auxiliary power units. The Pratt & Whitney GTF engine is the only geared propulsion system delivering industry-leading sustainability and dependable world-class operating costs. With up to 20% less fuel and CO2 emissions, the GTF engine has revolutionized commercial aviation and set the foundation for more sustainable aviation. Learn more at pwgtf.com. The show is also supported by Seabury Securities, a Seabury Capital Group company, which is a specialty finance and investment banking firm, boasting a 25-year track record of advising aviation clients around the world. Their award-winning and widely respected team has superior industry knowledge and an unmatched depth of relationships with decision makers in industry, finance, and government. Explore their global reach and scale at seaburysecurities.com. Last up on the news roundup front, let's go back to the summer reliability issue, but from a different perspective, Ben. We've had a few conversations about the weeks-long meltdown at Amsterdam Schiphol Airport, 
Now, last week, the airport announced operational caps, forcing airlines to cut about 16% of their schedules beyond what they might have already done. And that was quickly followed by London Gatwick doing the same thing with an operational cap. Is this going to become a thing, Ben? Are we going to start rationing airline operations back to the land time forgot with slot-controlled airports? Well, you know, the land that time forgot. Great old show, Chris. Um, Airports sort of deciding to reduce the number of planes coming in, I don't think is ultimately the right way to think about things. The rest of the world uses slot controls more than the U.S. does. The U.S. used to use them more. I'm sure you remember, Chris, that Chicago Hair used to be slot controlled, for example, and Newark used to be slot controlled, and neither of those airports are now. And while you see difficult things happen in Newark and Chicago, you don't see them happen less in the slot-controlled airports of LaGuardia and JFK, for example. This weekend, LaGuardia was a big mess with things, and it has those slot controls. So I think something bigger needs to happen here. This looks like a short-term thing that Amsterdam is just trying to figure out how to get back in shape. So they're saying, look, we just can't take as many planes right now. I don't think long term, that's the right way to think about metering air traffic. Yeah. And I should have rephrased my question a different way in the context of, you know, you're absolutely right. Lots of international airports still have some version of slot controls or or landing and takeoff times and and the like. You know, I think one of the issues that's going to have to be carefully looked at, and it's been revisited in the context of U.S. slot controls, but it's like, if you have limited resources, how are they used? What size aircraft? If you're trying to have an efficient airport, do you give slots to 50, 75 seat aircraft uh, that take up the same airspace as a 300 seat aircraft? I mean, it gets very complicated and you know, then you start kind of rippling into service to smaller communities and other kinds of things. But um, it, 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 it's clear, especially right now in the U.S. as well as internationally, airport operations are a finite thing in the context of capacity or the capacity to handle passengers given staffing. It's not necessarily an airspace issue. It's a broader capacity issue. And, and then, you know, Look, the cruise industry I'm in is being criticized for our staffing issues. And so I'm not pointing, I don't want to kind of point the finger back at others, but you know, we have to bring our crew from around the world to a ship and it involves visas and other kinds of complicated things. It's just unclear why, like in Amsterdam, why you can't get people to get to the airport to get to work. I mean, we've been waiting for this rebound and in, in, uh, air travel for two years, it's a localized issue. Why can't you get local people to work? I know it's the same thing with, you know, getting baggage handlers at at U.S. airports and hiring them. They're more airline employees and airport employees. But um, if I was a passenger, I would just be very frustrated. 
frustration is the name of the game right now if you are an airline passenger. And while the thinning schedules that U.S. carriers have put in place and maybe some tongue lashing by Secretary Buttigieg that might encourage some better coordination or better treatment of mishandled passengers, I still think this is going to be a difficult summer, probably better than it would have been without the thinning of schedules. But that's not going to change for someone whose flight's canceled or significantly delayed. Don't go away. Coming up, our conversation with Joe Lapano from Tampa International Airport. This portion of Airlines Confidential is sponsored in part by Aerodata, the leading edge in flight performance data. Visit aerodata.co. Aerodata is a Garmin company. We're very excited to have with us today Joe Lapano, the CEO of Tampa International Airport. Joe's been a longtime airline and airport industry exec. Joe, welcome to the show. Thank you, Ben and Chris. It's great to be with you both today. Well, Joe, as our listeners know, we always ask our guests to start out introducing themselves. So tell us about your background, what you're doing today. Yeah, okay. So... um name is Joe Lapano. I've been the CEO of Tampa International Airport for the last 12 years. And um, one of the things that even you, Ben, do not know about my background, I've been in transportation uh, pretty much all my life. So uh, I was a New York cab driver uh, before I went to college. I actually didn't uh, intend on going to college and was driving a cab instead. And I met uh, a woman who is now my wife who said, you, you really should go to college. And so uh, we found a way for me to go to college. And um, after I graduated, I went to work for Pan American, uh, working in the mailroom as a teamster. And uh, after six months, I was then promoted to the audit department and spent my, um, the first few years of my aviation career with Pan Am. Subsequently, uh, worked at Continental with you, Ben, from I think it was 75 to 85. And then uh, was at the Dallas-Fort Worth Airport as a number two from, uh, from 97 until I came here in 2011. And I've been here ever since. Joe, so, I was in middle school in 75. So I think it was 85 to 95, you mean. Okay. Okay, that was it. Well, uh, I got my numbers a little mixed up. <laughs> so, Joe, Florida's got a thriving airport business and airport community with some uh, big bustling airports. How does Tampa stack up to the competition down there? Well, you know, it's, it's interesting uh, when you really think about it. And this surprised me when I first learned this fact. But uh, the state of Florida is the only state in the United States that has four large hub airports. So we have Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Orlando, and Tampa. And, you know, when you think about Texas or California, uh, you would think that they would have as many, if not more, large hub airports than we do, and they do not. So of the four uh, large hubs in Florida, we're the fourth busiest. So we're, we're at the bottom of the pack, but we consistently are ranked at the top of, of Florida airports in terms of passenger satisfaction. And I think that's one of the things that we like to focus on, not, not that we are the busiest, but that we are the best. And uh, we, we really, really are focused on customer satisfaction. In fact, that's a strategic objective that everyone in the organization is, uh, is focused on and works on every single day. 
So uh, from that standpoint, we're, we're very focused. We also are um, somewhat different than other airports here because we have the highest percent of local originating passengers. So about 44% of our passengers are locals. So that's really good for airline planners who want to reach local markets and uh, business flyers particularly. And it just shows that um, most, uh, even the airline network planners tell us that we're not, we don't look like a typical Florida airport for that reason. Uh, Other Florida airports have a lot of inbound leisure uh, customers coming in and we have a lot of uh, outbound. So, you know, we really have a good business leisure mix and, this is also something that um, surprises our international travelers and, and airlines who come in. They know that we have great beaches, but they don't really understand our business climate. So when they fill up their business class cabin going to, let's say, Frankfurt or London, uh, very pleasantly surprised. So it's been quite helpful for us. Joe, you mentioned four hub airports in Florida, but when you think of Atlanta, you think Delta. When you think of Dallas, you think American. When you think of Tampa, there's not a single airline that pops in my head. So it seems to me that you're in a position where, unlike one of the other airports I mentioned, you're not sort of bowing to just one big carrier in your airport. How does that compare to maybe when you were at Dallas and pretty much had to maybe do what American said, even though that wasn't true, but yeah. might have seemed that way at times? Yeah, that's that's a very good point. I mean, when we were when I was at DFW, we did what we um, thought was the right thing to do for the customer uh, and for our stakeholders. And uh, of course, a big stakeholder was American, and we. We always knew where their, where their positions were on things that we wanted to do. The other thing about DFW is very complex. I mean, there's, we had, uh, American had four different terminals, airside terminals with many, many gates. Uh, 70% of their business was connecting. So anytime we made a change in one terminal, uh, as an example, it would affect every other terminal and every other gate, and we'd have to make adjustments. So Things that you would think are simple become very complex when, when you're in a major hub like that. So as, as an example here at Tampa, if I want to make a change at airside A uh, for a particular carrier at airside A, let's say United Airlines, that's very easy to do. And we can satisfy the customer with an easy change at airside A that doesn't necessarily affect other air, airlines uh, in the other airsides. So I think it's a lot less complex. I have a lot more flexibility here on the things that I can do. We just finished our meeting with the Airline Airport Affairs Committee. So no dominant member of that committee, our largest airline is Southwest Airlines with north of 30%, and then Delta Airlines is right behind them. So I think that we have a very diverse offering here at Tampa, everything from legacy carriers to ultra low cost to the brand new Breeze flying their A220s. So uh, we're very happy with that diversity. I think it gives us strength and uh, we have a very good relationship with all of our airline partners. So you gave me an opening when you mentioned the Airport Affairs Committee, PFCs. That's my favorite Chinese restaurant. (laughs) (laughs) So are you you in favor of raising the prices at that Chinese restaurant? (laughs) 
what's what's the sentiment about uh, raising PFCs from the Tampa perspective and yours? Well, I mean, um, you know, Chris, you worked for years at A4A, and you understand the differences in the positions of airlines and airports. I think that the way I would put it to you is the the PFC, when it was first enacted, evidently was seen as a good idea because it was voted into law. However, by, by virtue of the fact that it hasn't been adjusted at all for inflation over the years, it means that that must not have been a very good idea. So we what we're doing right now by the actions or the inactions that are being taken is that we're defunding that particular law. I mean, all that does is just place more burden on uh, GARBs, you know, general airport revenue bonds, whereas when we have the PFC, we're able to create a subordinated uh, debt uh, level, which could be rated differently than the GARBs. And that's resulted in us having, you know, a, a number of AA, rate, AAA ratings from the rating agencies. So, I mean, it's a tool and it's one that's been very powerful. I mean, $60 billion worth of projects, I think is the number, has, have been constructed using that tool. And that's all it is, simply a tool. If it, if it doesn't get raised, then it will have to find uh, another source for funds. And that source is probably airlines. Uh, through additional debt that we'd have to accumulate. Good answer to that question, Joe. And I, I noticed you didn't say we want it raised or don't, but I like the fact that you said it's that or something else, and that makes a lot of sense. Now, another big topic we've talked about on this show a lot is just the return of the business traveler. And some airlines are saying their business revenue is back, but that comes from higher fares and fewer people traveling. Tampa's an airport that sees lots of leisure passengers, but you have business there too. What's your view of the return of the business traveler for the industry? Yeah, that's a really, really good question. And one that we, we could spend a long time on this. I don't know how you define a business traveler anymore. And uh, Ben, I remember the days then when you and I were setting pricing and so on. You would, uh, if you bought your ticket, you know, two weeks out and you were staying over a Saturday night, we figured your leisure. And so your price is going to be X, Y, Z. And then for business folks who need to get to a meeting in, in a day or two, we would hold seats for you. And we'd, we'd uh, by virtue of the fact that we held those seats, we'd charge more for them when you bought them. The difference now with after COVID is with the use of uh, Zoom and Teams, you don't need to race off and buy a ticket to get to a meeting anymore when you can be there on teams. And the other thing is when, when you're going to, let's say, Denver for a business trip, you now can extend your, your business trip as a vacation, bring your computer, and you can be on teams for the first few days of the trip. And then uh, for the rest of the trip, it becomes vacation and you can bring the rest of your family. So your business ticket turns into a ticket for five people. So there's a, there's a term that I've seen floating around, leisure. That's a B and then the word leisure. Uh, so I think that it's hard it's hard for us to tell what the business traveler looks like, and the lines are very blurred ever since COVID. I do know that there are a lot of people who are traveling for leisure, and they're traveling in the front cabin. And um, th they may very well at the end of the day be going somewhere for leisure, but wind up doing work. 
uh, for a day or part of a day. So it's it's really hard to define it at this point. The bottom line, though, is we're seeing that our, our premium people who are buying premium fares uh, are almost back to where they were pre-pandemic here in Tampa. So uh, if that if that's a way to answer the question, that's what I would offer to you. I sat next to a woman flying back from Chicago to DFW last night who had a sitting in first class who had a blanket over her head the whole time. So I'm not sure she was a business traveler. So. <laughs> um, so. What is the um, service? <laughs> Beyond commercial aviation, you've got a, a good mix, like you said, of traffic there. What are your other sources of revenue? You have a lot of business jets. Yes. Have- what's, what's the, uh, what's the, the uh, environment for retail and other parts of parts of your revenue base. Yeah, our revenue base is really really strong right now. I mean, our our um, in terminal retail and food, beverage, and retail is extremely good, very very strong, and we're seeing records. Uh, we also operate uh, three uh, general aviation airports in uh, Hillsborough County, so we're responsible for every airport in Hillsborough County. So there are four of them. Uh, commercial airports, and uh, the, the the fastest growing of all, all those airports are the uh, general aviation airport system, where we've seen over the past five years, our revenues are up 42% in that particular segment. And it's, it's not a surprise to, to anybody that uh, folks are beginning to shy away from commercial airlines and to the extent that they can afford it, are, are moving more and more toward private aviation. And that, that's, that could be for any number of reasons. It could be because of the, uh, the dilution on ser- service levels or the, the need to try to stay away from crowds because people are afraid of germs and so on. So there's lots and lots of reasons, but the bottom line is it's driving our business up and we're very, very happy with that. In fact, our, our number one uh, FBO, fixed-based operator, is Shelt Air, who won for the, the second year in a row best uh, fixed-based operator in the United States. They have committed to additional $26 million expansion for three more hangars. It's a 100-square-foot hangar, and that'll take them from two hangars to six hangars. So uh, you can see that the, uh, the commercial uh, aviation side is what it is, but the private aviation side is growing very, very quickly. We also have, not unlike other airports I was at, like Dallas-Fort Worth, we've uh, we focused a lot of attention on commercial real estate. And not that we had the 18,000 acres that Dallas-Fort Worth has. Ours is much more limited, but there, there are still opportunities. And I'm sitting in a nine-story office building right now called Sky Center One, that we built uh, with a developer. So it was a P3 model. And uh, our plan is to buy the building from the developer here in a little while. It's 90% leased up and uh, it's it's a great revenue generator and it's a bottom line moneymaker. And we also have plans for hotels that we want to own and we want to diversify our revenue there. We have plans for uh, gas stations and convenience stores, which we want to own and diversify our revenue as well. And then one of the other big projects that we, uh, we've we got coming in is a, uh, a major simulator building from CAE. And so they're going to be training uh, military pilots on airport at uh, one of our properties. Uh, 
in one of their buildings. So, you know, the real estate side is quite strong. And the thing is that there's there's a limited amount of real estate at our airport, but uh, we're taking advantage of everything that we possibly can with, uh, of course, an eye on the highest and best use for those properties. Well, when you hear the words FBO, Bleasure, and GORB all within five minutes, you know you're listening to an airline podcast, right? <laughs> That's right. Well, We'll be right back with Airlines Confidential in a moment. But a reminder that if you're in the air transport business, you need to know the name Aerodata. For three decades, Aerodata has helped airlines get more from their operations with its aircraft performance, weight and balance, and load planning tools and more. Visit aerodata.co to learn more and see how the Aerodata team can make a difference for your air carrier operation. Welcome back to our discussion with Joe Lapano. Joe, rideshare seems to have affected airports a lot in terms of the number of people who park versus just get dropped off by their Uber or such. How has this affected Tampa? Do you guys have a lot of excess parking now or is it all working? Yeah, uh, great question, Ben. We do not have <laughs> excess parking. In fact, we're filling up in, in some of our lots right now. And uh, although, you know, when, when it first launched, the ride share uh, caused a major disruption to ground transportation, and it resulted in a change in behavior across many se- sectors from rental cars to drop off passengers and not just parking. Since that time, however, I think that people got used to using Uber. Uh, we got used to accommodating Uber. And then the, the uh, COVID-19 hit. And of course, as in most things, changed everything for uh, maybe forever. And so folks started not to want to share a ride or share a car because they were concerned about, you know, the germs and so on. Uh, So we're seeing our parking uh, revenues tick up significantly and our Uber and Lyft are still here. And in fact, we've just introduced, uh, I think it might be the only airport in the country, maybe LaGuardia's new terminal does it, but we have what we call express drop-off and pickup lanes. So we have a separate area where you drop people off and they use a vertical circulation device to go up to the transfer level and right out to their gate. They never see a ticket counter or a baggage claim. It's only intended for people who are being dropped off and who have their boarding pass on their phone and have a carry-on bag. So we, we worked with Lyft and Uber to program that in. So when someone requests a ride or to be picked up, they're directed right to these express curbs if they don't have baggage to pick up and, or to check. So that's that's a, one way that we've accommodated them. And in addition, you know, uh, what we've done, too, is we started a, a, system, a booking system uh, for online booking of parking. So we saw this as... Uh, a, com- a competitive challenge. And so we introduced online booking for parking where all you do is get on the site, click in your flight information, your, your departing day, your arriving day. And we offer three different levels of parking product for you at a discount. And uh, we've seen that that product take off significantly up to $6 million a year just in that booking system. So, you know, I think that Uber and Lyft, of course, in you know, in a in a capitalist society, it's good to have competition. They inspire innovation, and and what we're that's exactly what we're seeing here. So, uh, I guess I, I would say that we coexist in a very uh, 
uh, happy fashion. That's interesting you say that, Joe, because we had a similar conversation with Sean Donahue from DFW a couple of weeks ago, and you're right. Competition begats innovation. It makes mm-hmm. everybody better. It gives passengers more options to get to the airport. And that's what you want to do. You want to get them to the airport. So yeah. however they get there um, benefits the airport and the airlines. Exactly. I mean, the, the way I look at, at the airport, and, and actually the uh, the law that created us said that the only reason that you exist is to provide um, commercial benefits to your stakeholders. In other words, you exist to allow people to travel and, and do business by using the airport. And, and so if they come in an Uber, uh, that's fine. Uh, if they come and park here, that's fine. If they get dropped off at our new express lanes, that's fine. Because what we're doing is we're facilitating the growth of commerce and business. And that's, a, that's really our job. Uh, you know, of course, it's great to have a good parking revenue base. And we do, uh, especially since the, the business model that we have is awesome in the sense that we don't rely on taxpayer dollars to operate the airport. And uh, so at, at this point, the, the balance of, of that business model is quite good. If it gets out of whack, you know, the parking, parking revenues are number one source. It's something that we pay attention to. But the way that we feel like we can protect it is by offering uh, exceptionally good service. And that's part of the reason that we created the online booking system. Joe, before you joined uh, for this discussion, we were talking about the situation at Schiphol Airport and some of the European airports in general with their labor disruptions. And it's no secret that's a big topic for the U.S. industry as well on the airline side. How's Tampa handling staffing shortages and the like? Yeah, it's it's a it's it's a topic uh, at every conference that I go to. Uh, in fact, we just finished with the. Uh, AAAE, and they asked all the CEOs, what's your number one issue? And they said workforce. And uh, it's it's more than just workforce from the standpoint of hiring. It's workforce from the standpoint of retaining. It's workforce from the standpoint of maintaining culture. And um, so I guess it, I would answer the question a couple of ways. Number one, for our concessionaires, uh, especially food and beverage, it's been a challenge and, and we've opened up our, all of our outlets, but they can't staff all the hours of the day. And, and that's where the issue comes in. So we, we have had uh, problems there, but what we've done is we've created and, and we're about to hold a new job fair. We've had about a half a dozen job fairs in the past year. And we partnered with our concessionaires and we also brought airlines, rental cars and TSA and other tenant partners into it. So when you come to our job fair, it's not just a job fair for a concessionaire. It's a job fair that could result in a a job with an airline or with a TSA or something else. So uh, we've had up to 800 different um, applications uh, at one of these these events. So we're actually holding our first evening happy hour style hiring event later this month. So you say, okay, you're going to be serving booze to people that are wanting a job. Well, no, not really. What we're going to have food there. We're going to have mocktails and music and networking, and we're going to make it uh, a fun environment. And so we know it's an issue, and we have to be proactive in, in trying to solve that issue. And we've been pretty good so far, but this one's the first time we've done an evening 
uh, session. So we're, we're hoping it's going to be really well attended. Joe, that sounds like a real creative way to address some of the staffing shortages. Hope you get a lot of people at that event. What is your biggest concern or maybe your biggest fear about what looks to be like a very, very busy summer for the industry? This one is um, kind of an interesting issue. I don't think it's just Florida specific, but it's certainly been a problem for Florida since even since April. Uh, where I, I know I sat on an airplane for uh, north of three hours. And um, we, we have a problem with air traffic control, uh, FAA, specifically Jacksonville Center. And, you know, as, as you know, Ben, you're well familiar with uh, Florida and, and the growth patterns here. And also with the fact that Florida has a very specific issue with space launches and so on. So we've been challenged and, and we've seen some really I'll call them horrible days of operation where we've had major cancellations, we've taken major delays, and we've actually had airlines tell us that they will not fly the schedule that they told us they would fly because they can't afford to be burning fuel sitting on the ground here uh, while the FAA can't can't clear airplanes past uh, Jacksonville Center. So that is what I worry about the most, and that that to me is the... From an airport standpoint, it's very, very troubling. I would imagine, though, that A4A and others, uh, Chris, are probably all over this because you've got all these airplanes that are burning fuel sitting on the tarmac. Pilots are timing out, causing ripple effects all around the country. And so that that's my biggest worry for this summer. It's going to be we're expecting a very, very busy summer. And, uh, you know, and people are coming to Florida like crazy. And ever since, ever since COVID, Florida has become this uh, mecca for people who want to be outdoors and having fun. So uh, we're going to have a really busy summer, but I, we got to make sure that we can uh, have FAA support that. You know, Joe, that's interesting. When I was at A4A a long time ago, we used to measure airport delays and quantify them in terms of uh, lost productivity. It seems like, you know, the new measurement very well might be carbon. And what's mm-hmm. the what's the ATC impact on carbon and the industry's goal, uh, goals with regard to carbon emissions? So, um, yeah, I think that's I think that's probably right. I mean, so we you know, we, we'll have uh, just last last Friday, we had uh, 20 airplanes in line to take off and uh so those 20 airplanes are all running their engines because they never know when they're going to get the go-ahead. And and that's just us. Now, now you multiply that by, uh, you know, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Orlando, and you have massive carbon, but, you know, and, and you also have massive losses in productivity. So for whatever it costs to staff, the FAA is a drop in the bucket compared to what we're burning up with these delays. Right. Let's switch gears just for a second. Uh, we had a smart listener write us a couple of weeks ago about TSA and how clogged it is as you get through security and onto the other side, why it's just so somewhat dysfunctional and not very organized. And you know, we pointed out that most airports were built and designed way before the concept of TSA was ever contemplated. And so you had to jam in security checkpoints into an existing footprint. But are there things that 
airports could do better or the things that you all are focused on to, to improve the security process and the flow of people? Yeah, good question. I, I think the security, the security process is actually pretty good in this country, especially if you're in TSA PreCheck. Um, and, and to your point, though, the the almost all of our terminals, three of the four airsides, were designed prior to TSA being a thing, and uh, that that's number one. So that takes up a ton of space that we hadn't expected. But the other thing, too, is, you know, if we look at our latest peak month of this March, our average narrowbody flight had 167 seats on it and had an 87% load factor. And, and our airsides were designed, uh, the design criteria back in 97 was that the average narrowbody was 140 seats and had an 83% load factor. So, you can imagine uh, w- what this does to the to the loads on the terminal. It's and it's not only the security checkpoint; it's also restrooms and gate hold room seating, and all those things are being stressed. And especially when you see a single aisle airplane with the north of two hundred and ten or two hundred and twenty seats, and with great utility. I mean, the airlines can't make money with airplanes not turning. So the airlines have gotten good with about filling airplanes and turning airplanes. Uh, the facilities, though, have not kept pace because they're designed many, many years ago. So I think what we can do about it, and we're, we're in the process right now of um, uh, designing perhaps a, well, not, not perhaps, we're designing a new terminal, a uh, new airside, airside D, which hasn't been approved yet, but we're trying to look at all the opportunities and what our growth levels are going to be. And we're looking at growth levels that are significant, but the reality of it is that the the amount of room that you have in a terminal building is is very very important, and and that's a usual uh, conflict point with airlines. So when when we show a hold room, the airline's point of view might be, well, that's a pretty large hold room. Why do you have so much space? Or when we show, uh, for example, our restrooms and how large our restrooms are. Uh, that's all driven by uh, the fact that the airplanes are holding a lot more people per gate and they're turning airplanes more per gate than before. So, you know, when we're building a building, a 50-year a uh, life building, we have to be very, very mindful of not undersizing that building to the point where the customer experience is, is not what we expect. Joe, this has been great. As we wrap up here, we've discussed a lot of things. What else keeps you up at night as it relates to being the CEO of a major airport in the U.S.? Well, I'll tell you, um, Ben, the thing thing that uh, I have a very, very, very good staff, a very competent executive team, and they, uh, I suppose they they probably wake up at night uh, more than I do. But I will tell you that uh, I, I always want to make, make sure that we can maintain the legacy that we inherited, the legacy of greatness, you know, legacy of great vision. Uh, you know, I don't know if you know it, but in Tampa was the first airport on the planet that had automated people movers that would take people from, imagine this, Ben, way back when, take them from one main building where you drop your bags off, you get on a train and it takes you out to where the planes are. Which, you know, even today, to me, is remarkable and really fun to think about. 
imagine 50 years ago what that was. And so that's that's what worries me is that I want to make sure that we can maintain that legacy of greatness that we've been given. And um, of course, there's plenty of things to worry about in terms of safety. And, and uh, this is a this is a very safe business, but it's not for the faint of heart. That's for sure. Um, anyway, that's I guess that would be my answer. Well, and your legacy at Tampa in the airline industry goes way, way back. I remember when I was at A4A, we celebrated the like one billionth airline passenger in the U.S. And the first flight was from, first commercial flight was, I think, from Tampa to St. Pete or St. Pete yeah. to Tampa, yeah. right? You're <laughs> so. right, Chris. That's, that's Tony Janis. There you uh, go. He flew a guy from St. Pete to Tampa. And I think I, I think he charged him 25 bucks. Which a hundred years ago, Ben, let's do a calculation on the yield. Uh, you know, the RASM. Now, now we're talking real airline stuff, right? RASM, chasm, the RASM on that flight, and uh, you know, and we had Ed Bastian down here for uh, the Tony Janis Award, and we were trying to figure out the the uh, the yield, and the yield was like astronomical. <laughs> hey, Joe, I want to squeeze in one last question before you go. Other, other than Tampa. What's your favorite U.S. airport? Oh, boy. Um, you know, uh, you're going to think this is kind of weird, but it's Atlanta. And and the, re- the reason I say that is my son now lives in Atlanta, and he has three grandbabies, of the, three of my grandbabies. But So I, I got to go there a lot. But, you know, for, for an airport that can handle as many passengers as they do, uh, it's pretty darn good. I mean, it's clean. Uh, the restrooms are, are always in pretty good shape. I think the best pizza, uh, airport pizza in America is at, at uh, Terminal A, Verisano's. <laughs> Go and check it out. I'm a pizza expert. Verisano's is awesome. So I don't think a lot of people would say Atlanta, but from my standpoint, it works out great and it's highly efficient. That's a great answer, Joe, and one that I don't think a lot of people would have expected to hear, <laughs> but really good reasons. Thanks so much for being on the show. Our listeners, I'm sure, have really enjoyed this. I've learned a lot. Thanks for being here, Joe. Uh, Thanks for the invite, guys. I appreciate it. Good to talk to you. Same here. Promotional consideration by thearchive.net, the hub of the history of commercial aviation. Thearchive.net is now boarding. Well, thanks again to Joe Lapano for that chat. Now it's time for listener questions. Remember, you can send us a question via email at questions at airlinesconfidential.com or visit airlinesconfidential.com and follow the prompts. Ben, we've got a comment from Nick from Washington, D.C., and you'll find this hard to believe, but it's about the pilot shortage. <laughs> there is certainly not a lack of opinions and information, and we appreciate the input because this is very critical to the industry's success and future. Nick writes, gentlemen, love the show, but I feel like you and some of the commentators are talking past each other as to Alpa's position on a pilot shortage. Ben mentioned that Alpa is ignoring the pilot shortage by referencing shortages for this coming summer. Alpa doesn't deny that there's a shortage of Heinies, quote, in cockpits right now. Their position is that the needed pilots exist and have simply left the industry because airlines, regionals in particular, have spent years doing everything they can to lower pilot pay and quality of life. They claim it's better to improve paying conditions to entice more qualified and higher quality pilots to come back or to stay. The alternative is to lower hiring standards, which ALPA opposes. 
As an aside, we're now to June, so this summer's die has already been cast, which we talked about. If airlines offered $1 million a year or lowered hiring standards to just 100 hours, there still wouldn't be a single extra pilot in the cockpit come August. Any changes they might make right now might affect the Christmas season, but more likely will affect next summer at best. Ben? Those are great comments, Nick. Thank you very much. And you're you're right about the positioning of what Alpa has actually said. Here's my biggest concern about Alpa's position that increasing pay alone will fix this problem. The regional industry, which is specifically mentioned in your note, because that's where a lot of the issue is, fly the smallest planes, and the smallest planes when they're paying so much more for pilot services, just aren't going to be economic. Some of these planes go to subsidize cities, which may lose their subsidy without the service. So I think there's a reality of economics. What you can afford to pay a pilot flying a 777 or a 787 across the ocean is very different than what you can afford to pay a pilot flying from Salt Lake City to Kalispell in season, right? Or out of season, maybe in season, you can't afford to pay them more, right? And so I think there has to be that reality here. I don't doubt that pilots deserve good pay. They're already the second highest pay category of profession in the U.S. after only doctors. So I'm not sure how much more room there is, but I'm very open to that idea, but I just think on its own, even if they offered the million dollars a year, I think there's got to be more than that. And if they offered the million dollars a year, just a lot of flights would not happen as a result. And then, Chris, another twist on the same topic, but very timely. This is from Nicholas in Denver. Hello, Ben and Chris. I was hoping to get your opinion on a decision I have to make. Currently, I'm flying for a regional airline, and I got an offer to go to a ULCC here in the U.S. I'm not sure if that might be the right move now with the new regional pay rate started by Envoy and Piedmont. Should I go to the ULCC or stay at my regional and get some more experience and then go to a legacy? Things that are more important to me are job security. So am I going to be safer at a ULCC when the music stops or at a legacy that are well-known for letting pilots go. The pay, of course, is important, but not as important as job security to me. Thank you. Chris, what do you think that Nicholas should do? Nicholas, maybe Ben can make this decision for you, but I don't think I can. My reaction, though, to your question, which is a very good one and a valid one and one you have to make, um, I can't tell since you're based in Denver, do you work for Envoy or Piedmont? So therefore you're going to get this pay raise or perhaps you work for another carrier that you think will offer the pay jump to match. I would, I would frankly, I would wait. Not, not to not make a decision, but I just think it's too early and there's always going to be, you know, right now with, with the staffing shortages, I think they're going to be jobs available in two or three months at ULCCs like you just got offered. Part of me says, wait to see how this plays out because it's very early, the first inning of this 
situation kind of playing out with regard to pay scales going up and what's going on. And it, it might have been three plus years ago, you would have felt compelled to make a decision right away because perhaps these openings at the main lines and the ULCCs didn't happen all the time. But part of me says just wait it out a few months to kind of see where all the dust settles. But again, this is a very personal one. You're thinking the right way. You're thinking very strategically about the big picture, but I think you'll have more information in in a couple of months. Ben? Your advice makes sense, Chris. Nicholas, you talked about job security. I don't think either answer is more secure. I think your job is very secure, and Chris kind of said that. You could stay at your regional or you could jump to the ULCC, and the level of job security wouldn't change for you, I think, as a result of that decision. If you decide to move to the ULCC, that's a business model that is growing, growing quickly with a lot of planes. So how quickly you might upgrade from right seat to left seat, you might want to think of that in your decision making. Do I want to be a captain in an A320 styled airplane or a 737 airplane? sooner than get to the ULCC because that will probably happen sooner for you. But like Chris said, you're going to have that option and there's so much changing right now. It wouldn't hurt to wait, but I don't think you hurt your chances or or either hurt or improve your job security by moving to the ULCC. What you'll do is start flying bigger equipment. And so that might in some way actually help you if your ultimate goal is to work for a legacy. Yeah, no, I agree. And Nicholas, I don't want to minimize the choices you have or the conflicts at play here. I mean, because they are tough choices, but at the end of the day, these are good problems to have in the context of you have some really good things ahead of you, no matter which, which way you go. Well, let's bring this week's show in for a landing. So as you're putting up your tray tables and storing your things, let's give our shout outs, Ben. I'm going to give mine to Airbus, which had its maiden flight of its highly anticipated Airbus 321XLR for extra long range aircraft. The plane took off from Hamburg, Germany for a four hour flight last week. Lots of interest in this plane, which will be able to fly 180 to 200 passengers up to 4,700 nautical miles and a 30% lower fuel burn than previous generation aircraft. It's going to be a great airplane for sure. Nice shout out, Chris. My shout out goes to the return of the Flying Hanu. And those of you who don't know what I'm talking about, the Flying Hanu are three A380s owned by ANA Airlines that they painted as sea turtles. One of them is blue, one of them's yellowish, sort of sunsetty, and one is green. They're the best-looking planes in the sky, but they've been grounded through the pandemic. And the Flying Hanu are back. They're flying Japan to Hawaii now. And so it's great about what it says about the return of demand. And they're just great-looking airplanes. Look them up online, and you'll see what I'm talking about if you haven't seen it yet. I like that one, Ben. Everybody have a good week. Thanks for listening. Have a great week, everyone. This podcast is produced by Mass Media. Info at massmedia.net.